You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Pamela Hieronymi, philosophy professor at UCLA and Good Place consultant. If you're just discovering our podcast and this is one of your first episodes to listen to, make sure to queue up one where we do what we mostly do, which is to discuss a single episode of The Good Place along with a Jewish theme. You should find a link in the show notes here or go right to our homepage, tovegoodplace.com, and stream chapter one. And now to our episode and our conversation with Professor Hieronymi. Hey, it's John Spirasavet and Dan Ross and Professor Pamela Hieronymi. And welcome, Professor Hieronymi, Pamela. Good to, good to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. And hey, Dan. Hey. Hey, John. Always a pleasure. Wow. We are really so fortunate to have you on, Pamela. We have talked in the past to, to Todd May, the other philosopher associated with The Good Place, and we've got so many things to ask you about. But the first thing to talk about is who on the show do you think was the character you might most identify with or have identified with when you were connected to the show? So I definitely have to identify with Chidi which is the standard thing for me to say, since I am a professor of moral philosophy. But when he introduced himself as a professor of moral philosophy, I literally laughed out loud because it was so silly. And I believe that it was overdetermined that Chidi's vice is indecisiveness, because I believe that both Todd and I independently told Michael that that's the philosopher's vice. Like you, so you said to him that like if you're building a character who's a moral philosopher, that should be one of that person's uh, qualities. I think I told him that the that it's hilarious at philosophy conferences to look at the lobby during lunchtime because you have whole groups of people, none of whom can decide where to go to lunch. Wow, <laughs> is it is it like a collective indecision? Like nobody wants to take ownership, or are all of them? trying to figure out the places where they're going to go to lunch independently. It's the first. No one wants to be the person who decides. Ooh. Yeah. And in, in fact, there was a, there's a, a place we can go to, we can bicycle to from here where, where you can, it's like a fish market. You can choose fish, but they can, you can buy it there, but you can also just, you know, they'll, they'll prepare it for you. you can, you can eat it at picnic tables. And there were five of us, four philosophers and a lawyer. And it was perfect because the lawyer, the, which is the wife of one of the philosophers, just wanted to pick all, we're like, how about you pick all the fish for us? And she was so happy. And we were so happy because we didn't have to make any decisions and she got to, you know, pick all the fish. Yeah. Wow. So, this is going to definitely lead to, to, there's a, so much here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other question first though, is which character might you want to be more like? That I might want to be more like maybe Janet, not because she knows everything though. That's of course a great thing. To, to be, but because she's so calm, she's so just rolls with things most of the time. Yeah. Wow. So I know you've talked in some other places about your, your good place origin story, but tell us a bit about that. I got an email kind of out of the blue from somebody saying he's got a TV idea and would I be willing to talk about it? And I said, sure. 
And and that happens every so often. And it's usually like a graduate student or somebody. But I did sometime after I set up the appointment to talk to him at the coffee shop, Google him. And then I realized, oh, wow, this is, you know, the person who did Parks and Recreation and said, okay, big deal. And, and then when the time came, I had neglected to put a little alert in my calendar. And mm-hmm. uh, and it is the case that if I don't put an alert, the, the, the absent-minded professor shtick <laughs> is 100% real and it gets worse as sh- the longer you do this job. And so Mike actually called me. He actually sat at the coffee shop for like 45 minutes before he called me to find me sitting in front of my screen deep in my writing process and asking if we were still going to meet. And I was, of course, mortified. And so I jumped out. And luckily, the coffee shop was is just like two blocks from my house. So I, I jumped out of my seat and went running down to meet him. And subsequently, he has said, you know, adorably, that that this was when he knew he had chosen the right person, that if <laughs> that if you want a philosopher, the, what you want is the one who's, you know, so engrossed in her deep thoughts that she forgets to meet with the big deal TV producer. But it was embarrassing. And and I'd like to say that I'm not really like that. And, you know, it's comparative, but, you know, I do need to put reminders in my calendar. So, so I rushed down and we had like a three hour conversation, which was fantastic. He hadn't yet assembled his writer's room, but he had in his mind, you know, pretty much the whole, the whole show. I, I guess in another embarrassing bit of revelation, I'll say he did tell me at the beginning, the twist at the end of season one. And that I was forgot. What I was just about to ask about. Yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. No, I remember that there was a twist. I was like, no, there was some twist that was going to happen here. But like, I, you know, I, 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 I couldn't call it to mind as I was watching season one. So that was silly. So you were surprised well. along with everybody else. I mean, in that way that when you see something that you actually know, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I didn't. Yeah. It wasn't that I sort of knew it all along. I guess in my defense, he also swore me to utter secrecy. And and so one way to, you know, I do try to push things out of my mind that I've been sworn to utter secrecy about. So I guess it was successful in that case. But anyway, we talked for like three hours. He had this whole show and and he told me about points. And I was like, oh God, no, you can't do points. That's terrible. And then we talked about consequentialism. We talked about Christianity. We talked about contractualism. And, And I do believe that I'm responsible for the you know, the heavy emphasis on contractualism and the and uh, Scanland, what we owe to each other is the book that shows up in in the show. And that's the book that my dissertation advisor completed while I was his student. And I think it's I think it's as as close to right as we've gotten so far. And and I think it's a very compelling ethical theory, though one that is uh, appreciation is sometimes diminished because of the precision with which Scanlon stated it. So I, I like to be the ambassador in a way to try to, I, I, was, I, I left the conversation extremely gratified that I felt I was able to communicate this theory and these ideas to somebody who's you know not trained in philosophy, but but super smart and interested and interesting. So, so yeah, so I had that very long conversation before he even assembled the writer's room. And then, you know, maybe because I didn't 
get my calendar pinged. He also got a hold of Todd and made Todd his kind of right-hand guy. And so I didn't have a, a lot to do with, like, I didn't look at scripts. I showed up in the summers and then I met with the writer's room over the summer a couple times. And, you know, and that was more or less the extent of my influence. But I do think that that beginning, especially at the beginning and then also in the summer, I, I, I do think they, you know, they listened well and, and it had its, it definitely had its influence on the shape the storyline took. So I have a question just based off of what you just said, which is, so it sounds like the plot was set up, but maybe the moral of the story was not there yet until contractualism is kind of the moral of the story ultimately. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so you gave, gave, it's interesting that he had this plot in mind without having, you know, the ultimate message. Well, yeah. So he had in mind, I mean, the reason he contacted me is that I had a paper described on my website. You couldn't get it on my website. It was described on my website. The title of it was Attempting Virtue. An earlier incarnation of that paper was titled Why You Can't Be Good by Trying. And so he was interested in talking to me because the the idea that he was wanting to explore was becoming a better person. So he knew that Eleanor was going to be a bad person who wanted to become a better person. And he was interested in, so in my description of that paper, I said, this is a problematic project to set yourself to. And the, the, the basic thought of it is, if you're not a good person, that's because you don't have the right motivation, you don't have the right motives. And the standard suggestion, including given by Aristotle, is, well, you need to act like the good person acts, until you acquire the right motives. So basically fake it till you make it. But motives are not like muscles. It's not like repetition is going to make them better. So if practice makes perfect, this sets up a puzzle, which is why shouldn't, by practicing faking, why shouldn't you just become a really great faker? Like why shouldn't, why, why, why should it actually make this transformation? to make you into a better person. And so my thought on that is that you need not just to be faking it, but also to be open to discovery and open to learning and receiving a new way of looking at things, new ways of seeing the world. And that if you're just focused on becoming better for the wrong reason, you could be stuck like the insomniac where the very effort is counterproductive. And so that does show up in the show. So it's not until Eleanor is sure that she's not going to make it to the good place that she finally starts earning points in that show where they go out to the medium place. And she's she's sure that she's not going to make it. And, and she still just wants to help her friends. And now she starts getting points. So anyway, so he had in mind the idea that this person was going to try to be a better person. And the idea that there was going to be, you know, that th- that there was something interesting about the project of trying to be a better person. He he disagrees with me that you can't do it by trying. Like he's he's very adamant about that. But what he didn't have, and what I added, was the picture that being good isn't just a matter of doing good things, or or even having a certain set of 
you know, like having a shiny soul, so to speak, but it's a matter of how you relate to other people. And so that was the thing that he really liked as an alternative. And that's what came in with contractualism. And in fact, some of the early episodes include uh, what are called free rider problems. So problems where the, the result of your action seems pretty minor, but compared to how bad the action seems to be, how disrespectful the action mm. seems to be. So the living in Los Angeles, the example I like to use is people who cut in line off the freeway <laughs> where, you know, there's a big long line to exit and somebody pushes their way in at the very last minute. The actual cost in my day is like, I don't know, one and one half seconds or something. But the rudeness seems pretty outrageous. And the reason for that is, you know, you think you're special, right? <laughs> like you think the rules do not apply to you to quote my favorite quote from the matrix. So this is like the second time now Dan's mouth has been agape. The first was when we're on zoom doing this for the listeners. <laughs> and when you, when you Pamela were talking about missing the appointment and I think Dan's mouth was open for like two whole minutes and it's cool. Yes. Go on. Sorry. I interrupted you there. (laughs) Yeah, no. So, so anyway, that idea that it's not, you know, that, that it's not just about bringing about good outcomes. It's not just about having a shiny soul or being a, being a good person, whatever that amounts to, but it really is about the terms on which you're interacting with other people as you live your life. That idea was one that contractualism brought into focus for him. I'll, I'll just give my New York example of the getting cut off on the freeway, which mm-hmm. we call the highway over here, um, mm-hmm. is the person who stands on the escalator going down to the subway on the left. It is just brutal. Like, you know, like there's nothing mm-hmm. worse than like seeing the train <laughs> disappear down the tunnel when somebody has been keeping you at bay for maybe 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, though there, there's a, there's a consequence. You're missing your train. That might take you, that might miss, that might cost you 20 minutes, you know? So it's, that, that, that one's a little, a little more consequential. So I, I have at least two tracks that, that what you're talking about, Pamela goes off on. And I, so I want to, like the first one I want to start with was, it'll sound like I'm backing up or this is from left field, but I know, actually, first what I wanted to say was thank you, by the way, for the amount of your writing and talks that are available to public access, which I don't know if that financially is good or bad for you or the philosophy profession, but you've you've made all kinds of things that you've taught available and it's been wonderful to get acquainted a bit with your work. I know that you've done some work related to kind of, I don't know what you call them, the moral emotions sort of. Mm-hmm. And- to your talk about blame recently. I'm kind of curious what you think about envy and jealousy, if you have any sort of moral philosopher analysis around those things. Interesting. Those are not topics I have spent a lot of time thinking about, and certainly I haven't written about. I have written a lot about resentment, and there's a you know philosophical tradition that thinks that resentment and, and envy are tightly connected. And I want to say not necessarily to that, but the part of the difficulty of working in this subfield, which gets called moral psychology, where the the subfield is 
discussing the sentiments, the moral sentiments or the emotions that seem to be partly constitutive of our of our moral life together, is that these words that we use to try to get a hold of our topic, like resentment or envy or jealousy, are not, it's not an exact science. So one of the things that that I've come to believe about resentment, for example, is that there's actually at least sort of two versions of it floating around in the world, one of which I tend to call resentment plus, because it seems to me it has packed into it not only the thought that you have disrespected me, you have wronged me, but also you have wronged me. And if you had paid attention and tried a little harder, you could have avoided this. Right. And so if you think that resentment has that packed into it, then you'll think, well, if the person couldn't have avoided it, then, you know, it's it's not okay to resent them. Whereas I tend to think, no, all that my resentment commits me to is I've been disrespected. And and that's a, you know, and that's a problem for me. So it's about me instead of about you. Anyway, sorry, that was a that was a a redirect from your question since I don't know what to say about jealousy and envy. That's good. That's a classic undergraduate move that I made many times on on papers. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking actually, as you were talking about this moment in season four, when Eleanor and Tahani are, I think it's when Michael is off trying to rescue Janet, if I've got the the trajectory right in the bad place and she's in charge, you know, and, and so, and Tahani's upset that Eleanor is directing all these important things and Tahani is being asked to just like run parties and keep the humans diverted. And there, there seems to be an interaction there that's maybe sort of about resentment. There's some actually kind of cool stuff as you're talking, I'm remembering now in Jewish ethics to connect. It's more about grudges, but I think actually now I have to go back and tie it to resentment. I have just, you know, regularly on the podcast here opened up just, and I'm not speaking for Dan here at all, that that I have a, a good-natured envy and jealousy of Michael Sure, with whom I, I share some backgrounds and education. And I've certainly been wanting to be a, a sort of lay conveyor around moral philosophy for a long time. And and wow, you and they, you know, have done this amazing thing, and I, of which I'm so envious as an educator. And that probably motivated me to take on a project like this to try to go out and reach more people. And I'm not saying, by the way, I become like virtuous by by doing this. <laughs> so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that I can't claim. However, I do think that the question about motive is that I, I think that in, in Judaism, there is a real respect for mixed motivation and for uh, kind of the value of of even bad motives as a motor to good things. Not not that it's good to have bad motivations, but but we we talk about that. And and I was actually thinking about not just the the going to the medium place moment, but also even that that the moment of the twist or right before the twist, where Eleanor says that she she realizes she doesn't have to give up one of the gang. You know, who's going to go back to the bad place? Is it going to be her or some of them or? real Eleanor or any of that is a moment where she kind of reveals that she's she's no longer in that space of she has to do this for herself. And I don't think she's saying, I'm not the person anymore who would throw someone else under the bus. I think she's saying, I get that I'm sort of in it with these with these people, which is, I guess, maybe what you're saying. If, you're, if your bond to other people has developed to the point where you make different kinds of decisions, then you've kind of become, you've become better, I guess. So are you still sticking to the, you're personally, you're, you're still a little more on the Aristotle position that way, or you think your, your revision that you suggested, I guess, in a way is reflected in the, in the show, you know, both things are the case. You can become good. You can will yourself to be good, but not by yourself, I think is what you're saying, not just by your own. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so interestingly, Mike, 
Sure, thinks of himself as having moved to Aristotle. So he did the contractualism in season one and two, and then I think he comes back to it in season four. But he thinks of himself as you know having decided that Aristotle was the the greatest, and you know, and Aristotle thinks, yeah, you can be good by trying. That's exactly what you should do: is imitate the 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 good person, and that by doing that, he thinks you are going to shape your your emotions. You're going to like mold your emotions by doing that. Whereas I think emotions, you know, they're not like Play-Doh, you know, they're, they're, they're not like something that you just push on. Play-Doh, not Plato, right? Correct. <laughs> I realized as soon as I said it, that that was, <laughs> that with Aristotle in the mix, it was going to have, yeah, exactly. You know, they're, they're, they're not like, like bread dough that you push around. And so, you know, I think it's like changing your beliefs. It's like trying to come to a new set of beliefs that you that, that the way you're going to do it is by opening yourself up to a change in perspective or a change in conviction. And you're going to come to see that this is more important or that is more important. And one of the tough things, uh, and I think it's especially tough for the overachievers that like like Mike and I, is coming to think that your own moral performance, is not the most important thing in your circumstance. I have a paper, the title of wit of which I am unreasonably pleased with. It's called, I'll bet you think this blame is about you. <laughs> and towards the end, I get around to the Carly Simon song, uh, you know, and everybody thinks of the Carly Simon song as clever and interesting because they want to know like, who is the song about? Like, is it about Warren Beatty? Is it about Mick Jagger? Is it about just women, womanizers generally? Who's this song about? And she keeps telling you it's, you know, it's not about you. And and she's been extremely coy about it publicly. But I think the answer is this is a song about Carly Simon. It's about her, right? It's not, and you, you're so vain. I bet you think it's about you. It's not about you. It's about me. This is my life. This is my story. This is what's going on with me. What what you just said makes me think is that that's the ultimate, at least for me, theologically, the ultimate end of a belief in God is that right. you arrive at the conclusion that you do not sit on the throne of the world, right? It's not about you. The, the living is not about you. And And that's what I take to be the positive take-home message of Christianity, of the idea of grace is something like your righteousness is a non-issue. Mm. Right? So the paper, I'll bet you think this blame is about you. The idea is if you're the target of moral criticism, if somebody's blaming you and saying that you have disrespected them in some way, if that hits you, hurts you, damages you in the same way that it would if you were a Olympic performer who loved her sport and had worked so hard and got to the big performance and just, you know, botched it, just, just did badly. And, you know, so if, if, if you get the moral criticism in that same way of like, God, I failed, you know, like I'm, I am not the person I thought I should be, you are missing something very important about your circumstance. Mm. <laughs> and that is the other person. So the, the interesting thing in this circumstance is not that I failed. That's what I think, to my mind, the take-home message of grace is. 
is that, you know, my failure is very boring. The interesting thing in this circumstance is that somebody else has been hurt. Somebody else has been disrespected. And so somebody else needs a reassurance and an address from the person who disrespected them. Is that a dog or a cat behind you? (laughs) Uh, That is a cat on a leash, which is why it looks like a dog. (laughs) I see. (laughs) What would you say in response to the statement that dogs are moral perfection? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's pretty good. I I, I think maybe horses might be a a better option. But What makes horses so special? And what makes cats, as a cat owner... So not fitting into that hierarchy. Oh, no, I think cats are pretty great too. You know, they are, they have, they, they have a little more autonomy than the dog. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not going to push comes to shove. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give dogs the moral perfection over the cats. Oh, but, but horses, but what about horses? Horses are God's greatest creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's emphatic. Yeah, no, it's true. What, 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 why? They are so lovely and empathetic and sensitive and massive and gorgeous. Yeah. Whenever, whenever I really want to get ramped up, I watch Secretariat and the Belmont. Oh my gosh. It's like, it's just unbelievable. It's like the exhilarating two minute YouTube clip you'll find. I I know. So so I went through a, a period in which I made all of my friends watch his triple crown races in order. And yeah, it, it's like there's a it's like there's a creature of a different species. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Superman coming especially in the in the derby. It's like yeah. Superman coming around the bend. It's incredible. But horse racing is not a good use of horses at this stage. No. But secretariat, yeah. There was a dispute about whether Secretariat counts as an as an athlete because he was he was like Number behind twenty two in like the Sports Center, hundred greatest athletes of the twentieth century or something like that. Anyways, well, he was. I think I think in an earlier one he was number two behind Wilt Chamberlain, and <laughs> and and I believe that this caused a lot of consternation. But you know, of course, that's why, why okay. not. I've I've drawn us far afield and and I was, first of all, I will I will testify that my friend Dan does know what it, the difference between a dog and a cat. It's just that our our backgrounds, our Zoom backgrounds, are blurred. Thanks, John. Yeah, just thing. Yeah, and uh, yes, yeah, I've only just in my mid fifties here started to warm to the idea of you know dogs as being a war. <laughs> warm creatures to me. And I do have a daughter, not Lila, the one who's been on the podcast, but my younger one who definitely thinks that animals, almost all of them are superior morally to people. Yeah, I agree with that. They so should I, be immortal. Oh, wow. Well, I will. So I've been thinking about, I don't know, so I'm trying to bring this back. So I've been thinking about, about Judaism's probably greatest Aristotelian was Rabbi Moses Maimonides, who, and I'm not, one thing I've learned through doing this podcast is how little I know about both Jewish philosophy and moral philosophy general. So I, I represent the dabblers. But my understanding is that there's a lot of Maimonides' moral psychology, which is straight out of the Aristotle, what you've called the, the fake it till you make it school. But then that he has this idea, which, which is captivating to me and that I've been wrestling with, which is the one that I, that I sent you, Pamela, before, where he describes how you would know, basically, when you have changed yourself, because he believes that we're made up of our actual 
physical and emotional compositions. We can't really do anything about the those circumstances. We have to like deal with them as they are. But he also believes that we have free will in a sort of absolute radical way. And I don't know if that's an Aristotle. Is that an Aristotle position? And so he says that you would know that you've done complete teshuva, which is this word that means return you know, presumably returned to the scene of the crime, essentially the moral crime and, and righted yourself. It's when the thing that you did wrong comes to one's hand and it is in one's power to do it. And one separates and does not do it because of teshuva and not from fear and not from a failure of strength or, or power or capacity. And like when you get a moment of when you're, when you can override your wiring or your experience or even your emotions and make a decision and somehow constitute yourself as being a different person. And on the one hand, I sort of think of so many moments in the good place as like demonstrating that Eleanor has done that because she mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, sometimes she just, uh, you know, either whether it's a uh, recognition that she's arrived at a, she's different than she was or whether she just has become by nature, someone who acts differently. And I find this, I find this tremendously appealing. And I like the good place sort of as a description of what it's like to become different while you're connected still to your, to your history, to your own story and your own quirks. And I don't know, your moral quirks and things like that. And I don't know, I was just kind of curious what you thought about that and whether it's in this philosophic formulation I just rattled off or just the way the show, the show doesn't sound like that description of grace, for instance, that you were describing. I don't think that's another thing I don't know enough about, which is Christianity. Oh, well, so in so far as Eleanor does sort of stop thinking about her own need to earn points, that is a moment where her, as I was putting it, her own righteousness stops being the issue for her. And she then starts to connect more securely to the people around her. The quote that you gave me was interesting. So, so the thought is that you this is the part that was confusing me. So he says, what is complete teshuva? It's when you get the opportunity to do the wrong again, and you could, but you don't do it. And you don't do it because of teshuva, right? So, so that's what analytic philosophers would call a circular definition. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it, it's hard. Like, like it, I don't know yet what we're talking about. What's the thing that I'm doing it because? Oh, that um, is really good. I never noticed that before. Well, it's it's you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Is you un, you understand fully in your bones that what you did previously was in fact wrong. Is the way I would read it, as opposed to you know the the lesser moral intention of avoidance of punishment. Or in addition, the incapacity of for for proceeding with the sin. Or to use your Pamela's, I guess your your paradigm there. Like I'm just I'm just not tough enough anymore to insult that person the way I used to, or I don't have the the oomph in me to go after them the way I did. Which is I'm not I'm not afraid of them. I just like just not driven by that anymore. Yeah, I've just lost interest or something. Yeah, but then but then you still have the further. I mean, on on on. The idea that well, you do it because it's the right thing to do. You still have the further question of whether that's out of an interest in doing the right thing, out of you know an interest in achieving your own righteousness, or whether that's out of an understanding of the importance of. And now I want to take a step through the word right and say the importance of what's making it the case that this is the right thing to do. 
You know, I was I was thinking about as as we've watching the last few episodes of The Good Place, this question of on the one hand, they've made it clear all our characters are, have kind of done this thing for humanity as a whole, and all these people. Even it sounds like they've even done it for the past. Like Shakespeare gets to come here and he gets to write crappy plays, and <laughs> until he decides to stop, <laughs> but that they somehow feel some motivation to stick around in this good place until they decide to go. Tahani doesn't decide to go. Tahani thinks that it's worthwhile to stick yeah. around. And like, you know, is that, I guess that's not really a belief in her own righteousness. Exactly. No, Tahani got it right. So yeah, yeah I mean, oh, do tell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I, so, so the, the way the show ended, I mean, so in philosophy, there's a dispute between what John Fisher at, at Riverside calls the the immortality curmudgeons. <laughs> so, so people who think that immortality would be bad somehow w- would deprive life of meaning somehow would be boring or something, and then the people who who think no immortality would be fantastic. And so there's a dispute inside philosophy about that. And Todd, the the other philosophy consultant, is very strongly on, you know, what I'm calling the curmudgeon side. And the fact that I'm calling it the curmudgeon side, you know, betrays what side I'm on. Um, And I think we've all, we all know that he's actually, he seems like a delightful, not curmudgeonly guy. Oh yeah. No, he's delightful. He's wonderful. But, you know, he sides with the existentialists and with people who think that having an end gives meaning to what comes before the end. And that if you didn't have the end, you somehow would lose the meaning of what comes before. And in fact, you can see that. So coming into season two, I think, when I went to the writer's room, one of the questions they had for me was, how would you make make it the case that an all-powerful being needs to learn, or, or that, that a demon basically needs to learn how to be good. How do you do it then? You know? And my answer was, well, he needs to be overpowered. And I mean, he needs to see that he is not so powerful. And they achieved that by having the coup, by having the other demons gang gang up on Michael. So now Michael needed to become a team with the humans. And so needed to figure out how to be with the humans. And but the very next episode is the one in which Michael has his existential crisis. And that's Todd's answer, right? Is that he needs to see his limitations. And so when the show ends, Mike goes with Todd's idea that immortality would deprive us of the meaning of our existence. And so he paints that, you know, nicely with his picture of the endlessly boring good place with, you know, terrible plays and horrible music. So first, I don't think that meaning in life depends on there being an end. I think most of us, in fact, believe we're immortal until middle age, and we don't have any trouble finding meaning in the things we're doing, you know, until that point. But even in the setup of the show, there's plenty to do. You still have people being made on earth who need help. And so, you know, Tahani's the one who sees that, and decides that you know she's got she's got a project she's got things to do she's got she's got meaning so that's what I meant when I said I thought Tahani got it right. Mm. 
before I go down another totally different road, Dan, have you got something in this general ballpark? I had a I had a question about, so you talked about you can't be good by trying to be good and talked about the importance of openness to the possibility of transformation. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that's, what the difference between that posture is and is that not a virtue it, like how do you cultivate openness like is, is, yeah. is that not a virtue <laughs> oh good yeah no it is a virtue so I mean my claim you can't be good by trying that's you know it's clickbaity it's it's intentionally overstatement because it's not that you can't take steps to improve yourself you you, you certainly can the point I wanted to highlight with that overstatement is that any genuine, progress you make forward is going to have in it some receptivity not just not just effort it's going to involve a, some being receptive to a change that requires you to come to see that you were mistaken in some way and that being being receptive is you know it's something you could try to you could also try to bring about in yourself but it's not something you can conjure by fiat. It's very possible, and, and here I part ways with a bunch of moral philosophy, but I, I think it's very possible to find yourself in a position where you can't make yourself better. So the the, the kind of example here is the person who's insensitive. Well, insensitivity guards against its own elimination. So what you need is a, a kind of transformation to stop being so insensitive. And each bit that you get out of that is going to have come from something other than insensitivity. It's interesting. I was thinking about the the classic episode in the first season about lying, which has, I think in the plot, they decide the way that they're going to buy themselves time is to kill Janet, you know, and then cover that up. And Chidi can't bear the thought of lying. And so we get all the flashbacks about the boots and Henry is professor, colleague. It's amazing, which sort of, and that track sort of ends with, this is why we hate moral philosophers. <laughs> and, and Eleanor's track is we can totally lie. There's a good reason to lie about doing this, but then they have the the convening at the end where Michael is like, somebody here is responsible for all these things going wrong. And Eleanor looks at Chidi and says, whatever it is, I love you, man, or something like that, and stands up and says something. I, f- I forget exactly what her line is. And and even though his flashbacks have been about, I can't lie, and hers have all been about, I can, lying is great. And some some switch, I was trying to sort of note if there's like a point or if she just looks at, I think Dan and I might've been the ones who discussed this on our podcast. And maybe Dan, you know, just said like, it's not about her con- conceptualizing lying at all. It's just that she she just can't see him in torment. And he doesn't even have the answer for her. Well, well, the way he does, I guess he does. He doesn't. He doesn't know. He doesn't feel great about the answer. About his experience is that not lying isn't a great experience either. But she learns from his experience in a certain way that that in this case I have to not lie about what happens. That was a roundabout way of recounting that. And I think actually one of the things that's interesting about the the show is how people essentially almost use each other's memories or they learn from other, they learn from one another's experience. Even when, even when I don't learn from my experience, you might learn from my experience. And maybe that's what you're calling sensitivity, like a heightened. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, of that form of connection between them, but that seems right. So my other track here had to do with tractarianism 
And Mm -hmm. I have these like two contradictory thoughts. So it seems to me like a book title, like What We Owe Each Other, sounds like Mm -hmm. it should be inspirational and like, you know, should have been written by, I don't know, a pastor or something or or, Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King or something like that. And when I finally took myself to, to start to read it, and I, and I found the book like hard, like it seemed like it was all about the method of it. And I was thinking like, is the good place, are the writers cheating? They're just kind of using this book to say something that the book itself doesn't say. And then I have to say that I remembered something that I have remembered something. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't forget it, but I remember exactly, I wish I could point to like the chair, but I, I can picture where I was sitting the first time I read Kant as a freshman and this line about every rational being or person being equally deserving of dignity and respect. And for some reason, I had this like, aha moment. It's not that I didn't think that before, but there was something about that that inspired me. And I was just not reading the original German or anything like mm-hmm. that. But it was, it was a, it was a, there's something happened to me in that moment. And so I thought, well, maybe, so maybe I'm wrong about Professor Scanlon's book, but, but I didn't understand, I didn't understand it exactly, except as a way of saying, we do owe each other's things on this basis, which doesn't seem all that inspiring, or, but is it maybe more inspiring than I have been giving it credit? So this is what I meant when I said that its reception has been hindered by the precision with which he stated it. Like it's, it is not a book for the general public. It is not a book that you can kind of pick up and read, which is why I left my three hour meeting with Mike so gratified because I feel like I did convey to him the idea in a relatively quick way that and I do think it's inspiring I think it's very inspiring but but this is the way I explain it and you know and I'll say Scanlon himself kind of cringes at this way of putting it which is why he puts it differently because it's not quite right it's not quite per- but you know let's just set all that aside and let me just sort of give a rough idea so so suppose that you had people who were equally powerful trying to share limited resources and at war, but tired of fighting. So this is something like Westphalia, you know, in Europe. What are the terms of a truce going to be like under those conditions? The thought is, well, they're equally powerful and no one's winning, so they could keep fighting. So nobody's going to accept more than what would be symmetric terms or fair terms. And yet they're really tired of fighting. So they're not going to push for more than what they think the other people would accept as fair. So what would the terms of that of that truce be? Scanlon's thought is that those terms are the same as the moral principles, but that morality happens, so to speak, when we live live by those terms, even though we're not equally powerful. Do we have to internalize those terms or does that get you into the other problem you were talking about? Well, I mean, what it is to internalize those terms is to see each other person as somebody who has the standing to set the terms about how we're going to live together. And so to see their interests as just as important, no more and no less important than your own interests. And then to try to figure out, you know, how we would live together, the terms under which we would live together, given that we each have symmetric standing. So then to act immorally, to act impermissibly now, 
is to violate those terms. But that's just the same thing as acting as though there's someone who doesn't have the same standing as everybody else, someone who you can treat worse. Or to go back to my earlier thing about about the freeway, to think you're special. So how does that play into the very beginning of this conversation where we were talking about trying to go to lunch at a philosophy conference? Uh (laughs) Well, so it could be that everybody is, you know, wanting to try to defer to everybody else. The problem is that, you know, somebody has to suck it up and actually make a decision. Somebody has to take one for the team here. So according to this view, it's power is a, a burden or I, yeah, like it should be seen as a burden, I guess. So the, the part that Scanlon doesn't like about my way of introducing this is the appeal to power. He rightly thinks that that's, that, that has nothing to do with his way of understanding how morality is, you know, what it is for something to be right and wrong. I make use of it as a heuristic to say, like, what would those terms be? And then once we've, and then you have to kick it away. Okay. But now, even though we're not equally powerful, even though we don't appeal to power, we still live on those same terms. And what it is to respect people is to treat them as having a status to set those terms. So, so you want to kick away the appeal to power in order to get respect. So what we're owing each other is that, that fundamental respect. And what we secondarily owe is to keep up our part of this contract, the contract, but the contract contract itself isn't what we owe, isn't, isn't primarily, isn't the first thing we owe each other. Yeah. So interestingly, what's, what he says, what Scanlon says is that what we owe one another most fundamentally is a justification. And what he means by that is a justification by these terms. So that is to say a justification that that you could give to people who are determined to agree to live on terms that others who are determined to live on those terms could agree to. So it's a, it's a little it's a little roundabout, but but another way to get at it is to say, you know, imagine that and, and it's it's a demanding view. It is a, a liberal view in the old sense of you know coming out of the liberal political tradition in Europe. But, but it's a demanding view in that you need to think that the most important thing is to find a way to live peacefully together with other people, peacefully and respectfully. And now you can ask, if you had a, people who, each of whom thought the most important thing is to live respectfully with these other people, what would that group of people, what would be the terms that that, that group of people would come up with? Which would be like a higher, in some sense, a more moral contract. Is that what you say? It would be. It would. I I think it would be extensionally speaking. If you just look at the words, so to speak, the same as the terms of the truths that the equally powerful people would come up with. In both cases, you are going to treat the interests of each other person symmetrically with your own interests and symmetrically with each person's interest. And that is the same as treating each person as having a veto or treating each person as having symmetric say in determining the specifics of how we're going to live together. And so what it is to respect people, what it is to care about people is to want to live. So so the, the motive in contractualism is the motive of wanting to live 
unrespectful terms, which is to say wanting to live where mutual regard is mutually recognized. I respect you. I know that you know that I respect you. You respect me. You know that I know that you respect me. That's the relation we want to be in together. Um, And again, where respect means I'm going to constrain my pursuits. I'm going to constrain my interests to the extent that you're also willing to constrain your interests so that we can harmoniously live peacefully together without anybody being taken advantage of or oppressed. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. Uh, my mind is heading in a couple of ways. The, the Jewish part is thinking about the way the covenants at Mount Sinai and the Torah is envisioned later on by Talmudic rabbis as, as in many ways, a contract under conditions like this, where the divine recognizes this group of people who are so different, but all in the divine image, and they all recognize each other as able to enter into a social compact with each other, and the terms are quite high, and, and, and more they're more than that we're going to live peacefully with each other, and they are meant to embody a respect at a, with a more demanding, I guess, outcome. Than, than maybe the the other kind of terms are on the, the the modern philosophical. The other thing I'm sort of thinking about though is because you were you were saying that in the show arrives at a kind of contractualism. And is that just in that that this group of people by the by the middle of season two having iterated themselves 800 times to the same place where they all see that they're they're very different from each other. They don't they don't necessarily they're not naturally drawn to each other. They wouldn't have been on earth but their, their destiny is kind of all together and that they have to both band together in order to stave off eternal damnation. And they have to, none of, they can't sacrifice any one of them, you know, behind to get to sort of make the next step. Is that their way of demonstrating this or that I totally, is there something Yeah, I think it's their, you know, their, their concern for that, those relations of mutual recognition of mutual respect and that, that that's what's important about being good is not necessarily, I mean, so, you know, it's not until Eleanor gets, returns to her friends that she still then has the motive to continue her project of trying to be a better person. They need to be together. What one would notice listening to our conversations on this podcast over time is that we have a big division of opinion about Jason Mendoza. Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain growing faction who believe that he has sort of had this understanding of the the kind of a spark and infinite value of anybody. It can be anywhere. It can be in, in someone of that goofiness and Molotov cocktail solving <laughs> property. Mm-hmm. And others who think like there's no growth, there's no nothing happening. Do you have a, do you have a take on Jason or, or does he live up to this picture that you're describing? Yeah, no, I love Jason. And it, it's hard to know what Jason's vice is actually. He's a, he does all kinds of illegal things, that's true. And he doesn't appreciate the consequences of his actions. But but he also seems like a, you know, heart of gold kind of guy. But I wanted to go back for a second to the covenant, because I think the difference that you bring out about, you know, are we covenanting together to live up to a higher ideal is is actually really a crucial difference with the Scanlonian contractualism. And it's in fact one reason why in moral philosophy, people who prefer other theories, one of the things they really dislike about the Scanlonian contractualism is how minimal it is. But it's purposefully minimal. It's growing out of, again, the, the liberal political tradition from 
you know, the religious wars in Europe, where the emphasis is on neutrality with respect to broad conceptions of the good. So neutrality with respect to religious ideals, neutrality with respect to ideas of what human perfection is. The attempt is to find the minimal conditions that we could live together while disagreeing about those things. And so on the one hand, I think it's extremely demanding what the principles would be. On the other hand, it it intentionally falls far short of answering these questions about what the good life for humans is, what what would be best for us. It's it's intentionally silent on those questions. So there's a way in which it's it's looking for the maximum freedom of each consistent with the freedom of each. And so wanting to not look to a community that, I mean, to, to allow room for, but not require a community based around pursuit of some more specific ideal. So I have two follow-up questions, if that's okay. One is, does contractualism take a view on the origin of human difference and preferences in any way? Or is it just like, people are different and I like pizza and you like pasta? Or, you know, is there anything more to diversity of preferences other than that we have to figure out a way in which we can live together so that I get to have my pizza and you get to have your pasta. And number two, as you said, that it is as close as we've gotten to right. And so I was hoping that you could just speak a little bit more about why you, you know, why you assert that that's a very emphatic claim. So I was just hoping you could speak a little bit more about why this is such a powerful here. So, so contractualism doesn't take a view on pizza and, you know, the origins of these differences. I mean, it does rule out certain differences. So it rules out, you know, so if you think that it's in your interest to be more important than everybody else, I mean, if that's part of your conception of your own interest, then that interest is not going to be taken into account in contractualism. It can't be taken into account. You run into a contradiction. So the the interests that are taken into account are the ones that can be treated symmetrically. And what counts as treating them symmetrically is not settled by the theory. That's the big open question. And until we know that, we won't know which things are right and wrong. And this is one of the things that people, another thing people are find themselves dissatisfied about with Scanlon's contractualism is that it, it's not a recipe. You can't, you know, turn the crank and get out the right answer. It's an account of what it is for something to be right and wrong, not account of which things are right and wrong. So it doesn't take a position on that. And in fact, it, it, it allows for a really kind of interesting way to treat relativism. So the fact that it's not just that individuals have different preferences, but whole cultures can have different preferences. And according to contractualism, that's fine. You know, it, it, as long as it's organized in a way that no one can reasonably reject. It's organized in a way that treats each person symmetrically. Now, why do I think it's the closest we got to correct? Um, mm-hmm. That's a great question. The hunting answer would be to say, well, because I think that the liberal project of living with other people on the terms that give them freedom of conscience is, is the right thing to do, which is just to sort of restate that I think it's correct. But yeah, I do think that it was a wild thing, a wild and contingent thing that happened in human history that we had roughly equally powerful religious factions at war in Europe 
And they came to the conclusion that maybe the thing to do is to stop telling one another how to live. And maybe the thing to do is to let each person work it out on their own. I think that's one of the most important insights that we've encountered, <laughs> that, that we need to give other people freedom of conscience. However, we also need to find a way to live in a society that requires a high degree of organization and coordination. So how are we going to put those two needs together? How are we going to let people figure out for themselves what they think the right way to be human is, while also living in a society where we coordinate and share a world of limited resources? I think the contractualist answer to that is the best answer you know, gets the question right, which is how do we put those two things together and gets the answer right, which is by treating each person equally. It reminds me of this book by James Carse, Finite and Infinite Games. And so the premise mm -hmm. of the book is that there are at least two kinds of games, finite games where someone wins and the purpose of the game is to win and infinite games or one infinite game, which is the purpose of the game is to keep playing. And I think he has a very powerful definition of evil, which is to treat the infinite game as though it's a finite game, to treat life and the way that we live together as though it's a, as though it's a winnable game. So it kind of reminds me of. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Before I ask you what, what might be a kind of starting to wrap sort of question, I am curious, Pamela, especially since this is probably a version of conversations you get to have all the time. If you want to turn turn the tables on us and all and anything you want to ask to to rabbis, to religious Jewish people, you know, on on anything and well, anything at all, really. Yeah. So I mean it's a very wide open question, but but what did you think of the good place? Hated it. <laughs> <laughs> If I, if I recall correctly, John, the opening conversation that we had in the very first episode was something along the lines of, if you could, because what, there's 51 episodes in The Good Place, right? Or like, you know, something like that. And so if you could have someone watch an episode of The Good Place every week, or if you could have them read the entire Torah, which, you know, if that's what we do, that's that's what we're in the business of, which would you choose in order to cultivate better people? And it was not an obvious answer. Interesting. <laughs> necessarily. Interesting. Um, you know, the good place has the benefit of being intentionally funny, very skillfully done and, and with rich, deep wisdom. What I think that makes the Torah special is that it's, you know, it's ours, which is to say it, it belongs to the Jewish people and it's kind of like a love letter from our ancestors to us. And so, so long as we approach the rereading of that with that posture, I think that we can, you know, milk it for blessings every year. But if you want to get the punchline of how to be a good person, the good place is surely, surely quite effective at, at providing that. Interesting. I've been I've been working on a long form answer to this question, which I may record. Are you raising your hand, Dan? No, Dan? no, no. Uh, so, I, <laughs> I think that what I really appreciated is the way in which the good place and and like I think first of all, you do have to love that humor, which I absolutely do. And and I just think it's it's brilliant. And I've watched it now, watched it with with at least two of my kids and my wife, and we, we just love it. But I think I'm impressed at how it takes ideas that I think I've been thinking about and 
you know, those kind of basic questions of moral philosophy and relates to, to, to I want to say, answers I've thought about either through my academic education or my Jewish learning and grab something familiar and twist it in a way that, that really penetrated for me. And, and I think I'm envious. I started with envy. I'm envious that mm-hmm. people who could create something so captivating around these topics, not by hiding them in something else, like a show about something else that's actually about morality, but, but that's just square on. And also, I think because of this amazing thing of this group, and I don't know if Michael Schur has talked about, you know, Gilligan's Island, Taxi, you know, Cheer as Friends, whatever, as sort of this paradigm, but, but this version, like, I would, I would love to go through life with a band of, of ethical adventurers like this, with, with whom I was having a great time. And reminding me actually something I think that you said, Pamela, that it's not it's not my own righteousness and and it's not just dependent on me. And and so those are many, many things that I just loved. And I I'd spoken, I think the first time Dan and I talked about this on the to the microphone, that initially I was scared off by the show because I thought I would have to think about it so much that it would become like a rabbi chore, you know, what's the <laughs> sermon about this week? And it took my daughter, who's now in college, watching it ahead of me, telling me all about it. It's like, this is ridiculous. I need to be watching this show. I would love this show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even though it's become like a work project a bit, I do still love it. Mm -hmm. Do you, Pamela, do you love The the Good Place? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's one of the things I appreciate about it is that they were very smart to allow the little philosophy lessons that happen at the very beginning to swing free of the themes in the plot. So so they, they don't make the philosophy lessons march with the with what's going on in the in the plot of the show. And I think that was very smart. Yeah. And I think that this this kind of looping through and telling you that they're going back to something we learned before. Oh, cheating when you taught us about X, but other times just like relying on the fact that we get it because we've been mm-hmm. such a good, such a good thing. You know, you started off sort of running down the negative stereotypes of moral philosophers. I, I have to say that I think this this kind of conversation and which you've been doing that I've read a little bit of is a wonderful contribution to me. And I have, again, talked before about, I think, my own thing. And it really drew me to the good place is, on the one hand, I thought I wanted to really delve into this kind of philosophy all the time. Then I sort of wanted to just, I want to get into like practical ethics, like be nicer to each other. I'm happy if people are just good to each mm-hmm. other. I don't know why, like who cares? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I feel like there's a value to philosophy and the questions and the underpinnings and the justifications I feel like have value and I, I, I feel like are needed now. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. just self-justification because I like to think about them. But I am curious what you think about as a, as a person, a, a, a professional, a person who does professional work in this field about, I mean, are we, are we Dan and I, who are rabbis who teach and, and use as our primary vehicle, you know, other texts, which we then might relate to, you know, about the Bible and other kinds of things that spin off that, but that probably in their in their interpretation history, then weave in these things. Like, are we are we like a uh, are we at our best like a good TV show that is sort of helping to translate the things you know to a wider audience? Is there something different you think we're doing? Is there anything bad we're doing that's sort of off <laughs> that's not helping that we could, that we could be doing? People like us could be doing better when people venture into your field and then try to you know use that or teach that through other vehicles. Is it good for people? Is it good for society? Yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. 
So on the one hand, I think that those of us who teach and think about and write about moral and ethical issues do have ways of framing and organizing the topic, do have ways of approaching questions that are useful, helpful, dare I say even more truthful, or and that as I was able to do with Mike, being able to translate that out to the general public is really great. And in the aftermath of the show or while the show is going on, I, I was able to talk to a number of journalists. And and again, both in, in talking to Mike and in talking to journalists, I mean, these are people whose training is in storytelling or in communication. And insofar as I have training of that sort, it's to talk to people in a very specific conversation, a highly trained conversation, like the book, What We Owe to Each Other is part of, which I said is not, you know, a book for the general public, or to undergraduates where I I have, you know, a, a captive audience for a long time that I can work with. And so I think it's fantastic to partner with people who are able to communicate in a different way. And then the other piece, which I think is is connected, but not quite the same. I mean, when I teach my introduction to ethics class, the thing I want most to have happen is for my students to come to see that it is not only possible, but great to respond to difference and disagreement with curiosity instead of fear. And the more we can just notice our differences, notice our differences of opinions, notice our differences about what we think the right way to live is, what we think the world is like, and be curious about that and and not threatened by it. You know, I, I think we will all of us become better people and do better job of of living together peacefully. So so I think that the kind of thing that you're doing in terms of like having a podcast and let's let's talk about these ideas and let's see see what where we get with them. I think that's you know contributing to that completely central task, central and crucial if we're going to, you know, live in in the kind of what I would call free society that I think we should live in. Yeah. Yeah. Are you finding that you're getting now undergraduates who were like 13 and 14 when the show, I, I haven't done the calculation when the show first came out and are like, I want to take Professor Hieronymi's class because she was like with the good place. I, I do have students who, who, who kind of sheepishly tell me that that's why they want to take my class, which I think is hilarious and fun. But yeah, you're, you're pointing out how quickly pop culture you know, fades out of the undergraduate population too. Though it is, I, I tell them, it is a fabulous thing that my childhood and their childhood meet in Star Wars. Oh. So we have, we have Star Wars that we can share. Oh, wow. Cause I was, you know, when I was an undergraduate, this is probably, oh gosh, this was, you know, more than a decade after Schoolhouse Rock and a professor wondering why people were humming the tune of the preamble to the constitution and those uh-huh. classes. And, and I wonder at that point, if the good place has seeped enough into the culture that you have people saying, oh, this thing you're talking about with Aristotle, that's like on the good place, you know, right. Right. That is that up the the literacy, the moral philosophy right. literacy in the, in the undergraduate population? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's fun. You got to make your appearance on camera. What what was that yes. like? 
What was that? That was it was hilarious. It was really fun. It was just Mike's, it was just out of the kindness of Mike's heart that he wrote us into that last episode. There was no reason for us to be there other than him being a nice guy about it. But I had a little trailer, you know, so on the on the sets, you 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 get a little half of a air-conditioned trailer to spend the day in. And I did hair and makeup and had to react to Kristen Bell and had to, you know, and and was there on the set for the whole day watching them shoot. And so I met all the actors, had lunch with them. They, they, they were all wonderful. Is there anyone that you want to give a shout out to as, is there an influence even earlier than Professor Scanlon on you taking up this interest? I've had some really great professors. So my, when I was an undergraduate, my undergraduate thesis advisor was a man named Elijah Milgram. And he definitely set me off on this path and taught me extremely well. He's now at Utah. He's a professor at the University of Utah. And yeah, I mean, there's too many people to name. Richard Moran was a teacher of mine as an undergraduate who then became a member of my dissertation committee. I mean, one of the fun things about academic philosophy is that it's a small town. So you you get to see people and spend time with them and learn from them. Pamela, I just wanted to thank you so much for making the time for this. It's been incredible to talk to you. We really appreciate your making time for us again in a version of what I imagine is what you do full-time. And Professor Dr. Pamela Hieronymi, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It's been fantastic. And that is all for this special episode of Tove. Thank you so much for listening. We've got more coming, so make sure you are subscribed and help others find us by giving us a good rating or a shout out somewhere. We'd love to be in touch. Send an email to tove at tovegoodplace.com or connect with us at tovegoodplace on social media. Professor Pamela Hieronymi has a terrific webpage with links to all kinds of her work, which we'll put in the show notes, or you can look it up. Hieronymi is H-I-E-R-O-N-Y-M-I. Dan Ross is on Instagram at R-A-V underscore W-O-D. And I'm John Spira-Savet at RabbiJohn.net and on social media at RabbiJS3 and occasionally on TikTok at R-A-V-J-O-N. Thanks again for listening. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.